We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Yes, it is, and welcome back. This is this is great. I um <clears throat> I love it when I get authors on right when they publish something important. And uh, our good friend, uh, is there a more frequent guest outside of the regulars than Dr. Tevi Troy, cultural and presidential historian, author, most recently of the book Fight House: Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump. Big important article. I tweeted it out. If you want to get a link to it, and you follow me on Twitter at Seth Leipson. In um, the magazine National and Af- National Affairs, just out, how to defend free speech? Uh, it's so good, Tevi Troy, that I sent it to my sister, who agrees with me on little, thinking uh, that uh, you know anyone involved in the academy or concerned about political correctness and free speech, anyone of whatever political viewpoint, this is a hell of a history that you've put together here in a great piece. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me, but I'm dying to know. What did Dana say? She's going to let me know later. She hasn't read it yet. She said she'll read it. I sent it to her this morning. She said she's going to read it tonight. Fair enough. It is a long piece. It's a great piece, my gosh. It It reads quickly because you remind us, as such a good cultural historian that you are, of things we know but forgot about. And we read them and go, ah, yes, now I remember that. Now I remember that. Before we get to it, I said something to you. Do you want to countermand it? That I don't think anyone knows more about baseball, including your son, than my producer Bill. Um, no, I believe Bill is a is a quite quite the sabermetrician. You can uh, ask him much. anything about old baseball. Go ahead, throw something at him. Uh, who's the last National Leaguer to hit four hundred, Bill? National Leaguer. Ooh, that's that's a good one. George Sisler, maybe. Uh, no, it, it was Bill Terry. I thought I'd give you a hint by saying Bill there. So. Oh, nice. I think it was George Sisler. Okay, fair enough. To the smartphones we go. Uh, anyway, I would love to talk about my piece. Uh, I'd love to talk offline about baseball with, with Bill. Uh, but, uh, look, I'm, this piece I wrote in National Affairs, I wrote because I'm concerned about cancel culture and the lack of free speech and the sense. And I, and I understand before the First Amendment people come after me and say that government restricting free speech is what the First Amendment is about. But we have a situation in America where people feel like they cannot say what they believe, and the inability to say what they believe is is kind of essential to a free society. Cato did and, a su- survey a couple months ago, two, three months ago, and it shows that that number is close to 70% amongst conservatives in America, both at work as well as on the college campus, don't feel that but, they but can... Liberals ex- as well. Liberals as well feel like they can't say. Now, I'm not going to say leftists and... You know, uh, you know, Dennis liberals Prager as makes well. The distinction between liberals and leftists. Uh, you know, I, I think leftists feel like they can say whatever they want because everything they say is right, and uh, they don't care what anybody else thinks. But it's um, not a First Amendment liberals- issue. There's something more important than the First Amendment, and it's that which it is designed to protect, which is freedom of speech. Nathan Sharansky, in a related, related quote, said that 
there is a greater danger than one to democracy when you're talking about the freedom of people. After all, freedom begins inside you. If you are afraid to speak publicly about your views, you're not a free person. I think he actually said that to your brother. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Sharansky, because Sharansky was obviously a dissident in the Soviet Union, a famous refusenik, and uh, escaped with the help of and support of the, the United States, was, uh, was, was, was traded in a prisoner swap. Um, and he said that the feeling he gets when he goes to college campuses in, in America today is like that he felt in the Soviet Union. Where it's, a, it's, a, it's a phenomenon called doublethink, where people think A, but they say B because they feel like they're supposed to say B. Mm-hmm. And I also read this great book, by Rod Dreher called Live Not by Lies. Mm-hmm. And Dreher grew up in America, but he talks to people who lived in the Soviet bloc, and he said that they, to a person, feel that sensation, what it was like in the Soviet bloc, that you couldn't say what you believed because of the dangers that would happen to your career, to your family, to your livelihood. I think it's all predating Dreher and Sharansky, honestly, although I agree with both of those sentiments. In an essay Vaclav Havel wrote in 1978 called The Power of the Powerlessness, and it's about living with the lie um, and and living in a lie. And it includes even being compelled to say things you don't necessarily believe and why you do it, why the green grocer hangs the sign, workers of the world unite in his window, you know. I don't know if you're familiar with that essay, Tevi, but I I spent a lot of time on it in my monologue, and I just recommend it. Uh, very highly, because I, I'm guessing Rod Dreher was picking up off that. Yes, but, um, but, but again, Havel was talking about a different system and not free system, and we, theoretically, in America, live in a free system. And I think what Dreher and Sharansky are getting at is that this sense of unfreedom has come to America in a way that it didn't exist before. You know, Seth, you and I always like to talk about the, uh, the Nazis in Skokie, right, as a kind of a famous test case for how, what you believe about the First Amendment. And, you know, you may think the Nazis should have had the ability to march in this predominantly Jewish area or, or not. But the ACLU fervently believed they had the right to do it on free speech grounds because they were First Amendment absolutists. And I didn't always agree with the ACLU, but I respected their consistency in their First Amendment absolutists. The ACLU would never take that position today because they only believe in free speech when it is a liberal making a free making their position, and that that person can say what they want. Uh, but they don't defend free speech when it's someone who's not liberal, and uh, that you know that that lofty I think is very disturbing. It's hugely disturbing, but that's why I think Sharansky and Havel are worth paying attention to. I think you'd agree with this. Maybe you were saying it in a different way, is that when we watch the assault on freedom of speech in this country, it is so redolent of what Sharansky and Havel went through that it is worth more than a flare in the in the air. It is it is it's worth sirens and alarms because, you know, Havel didn't start his dissidency by being put in prison. He started his dissidency when the communists wouldn't put his plays on the theater anymore. It started with the curbing of speech. Later, he was put in prison when that wasn't sufficient. And a lot of us are worried about that today on the right. A lot of us are very worried about that. I, I agree, but, but let me make just one, one more point. It's almost is, as... Okay, okay. That you can go on conservative talk radio and hear about this lack of free speech, yeah. and it's a, I agree yeah. with it, and yeah. everyone kind of bemoans it. But what I'm trying to get at in my article is that we've had this fight before, and there were things that conservatives did that worked 
that helps push back the anti-free speech forces. And what I'm trying to get at in my article in National Affairs is maybe we can use some of the things that worked in the past and try them again. And that's what I'm trying to get at. I'm trying to oh, you're absolutely right. Vision. You're absolutely right. And I wanted to get there, and I'm glad you brought us there. Because, but uh, but it's good also that we laid out the problem intellectually. I think from from where we see it as such a danger. Um, we didn't pay perhaps – is this a fair thing to say? We didn't pay perhaps enough attention to the early uh, warnings, um, the early sirens, the early uh, beacons on this issue that you, you, you detail in your, in your piece. We're talking about Roger Kimball. We're talking about Dinesh D'Souza, Alan Bloom, William Bennett. You quote illiberal education, Dinesh D'Souza's – is it his first book, his first important book, maybe? And 1991, and he writes in the introduction, there are changes in the intellectual and moral infrastructure of the American university not found in its outer trappings. Within the tall gates and old buildings, a new world view is consolidating itself. The transformation of American campuses is so sweeping that it is no exaggeration to call it an academic revolution. This distinctive insignia of the revolution can be witnessed on any campus in America today and in all major aspects of university life. I paid attention. You paid attention. Conservatives paid attention. No one else did. And now liberals are getting boomeranged on it. Fair enough? Um, actually, what I say in, in my article is that conservatives raised the alarm. They sounded the alarm in the late 80s and early 90s. And they did get some liberals to listen. And I think they, they kind of went mainstream with their argument. I don't think the press was as divided then between a conservative press and a, and a, and a liberal press. I mean, if you got, as D'Souza did, did, get his argument in mainstream publications like Time and Newsweek, uh, then it was part of the broader conversation. It was kind of easier. We were less disaggregated as a society in terms of where we got our news. And if you followed the New York Times and the Washington Post and the news, Time and Newsweek, which were very big back then, you would have been aware of D'Souza's argument in a way that if you just read the New York Times today, you might not be following the cancel culture stuff so much. That's an interesting point. Let's pick up on that. If you read the New York Times in 91, you would have been aware of it. If you read it today, you wouldn't. That's interesting in and of itself. Let's pick up there and work backwards. We'll be right back with Tevi Troy. His piece, really excellent, How to Defend Free Speech in the Current Issue of National Affairs, nationalaffairs.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Dr. Tevi Troy is our guest. His most recent piece, just I think published today in National Affairs, How to Defend Free Speech. Tevi, um, do you want to take us to the beginnings of this argument in the mid-80s, early to mid-80s, and bring us contemporary, or what's the best way to go here? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. The, the, uh, it's the a 90s. lot of names people on the, uh, who listen to the show will know, because... With all, with the exception of Alan Bloom, they've all been fairly regular guests that you mentioned. But go ahead. It's all you. The 80s and 90s are far enough away that they are now history. Right. And we should look at them historically. Right. And when I was looking at the free speech problem that we face today, the cancel culture problem, I just saw echoes of what had happened previously. And I remember that it, it was a pretty good success for conservatives, and not just conservatives, people who believed in freedom and freedom of speech, pushed back against the excesses of free speech, uh, the excesses of political correctness 
in the 80s and, and 90s. So I decided to go look into that era. And there are things that I, as you correctly said, things that I knew but I forgot I knew, but there are other things I didn't know at all. And what I found was there were people like Alan Bloom and D'Souza, which I did remember, uh, who wrote about the problem and and got it into the mainstream press. But what I didn't remember so much was that there were people on the left who picked up the mantle and joined those folks, so much so that Barbara Jordan, the liberal icon who spoke at the 1992 Democratic Convention, mentioned the problem of political correctness in her speech and denounced it. So if we could get the, uh, I don't know, who's, who's the analog to Barbara Jordan today, uh, you know, Ocasio-Cortez, or even, I mean, somebody who's a real liberal icon, get up and denounce But that, it, isn't that the problem, I hate to interrupt, enormous. I'm sorry, but isn't that the problem is the distinction between liberal and left? I mean, you're citing Arthur Schlesinger and Barbara Jordan, who I don't think have much in common with AOC today, or Ilan Omar, or the modern-day left, or Kamala Harris, for that matter. I don't. Right, but, 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 but there were radicals then, too. I mean, the radicals were the people Fair on enough. campus. And, Fair enough. And, and what I do cite in the article, I, I name names. Yeah. I think people who consider themselves on the left who are just not happy with the, what's going on. Uh, Matt Taibbi, for example, yep. I, I mentioned. Yep. and. um uh, I think I mentioned Andrew Sullivan, yep. Mary Weiss. I mean, there there are uh, Matt Iglesias, who is you know. Would you I mean, throw Bill Maher in there? Would you put Bill? Would you put Bill Maher in that crowd? A little bit, yeah, a, li- a little bit. Okay. Um, uh, Jonathan Chait. I mean, the, the guy Jonathan Chait lives to read something by a conservative where the conservative might have made an error or a straw man and highlight that piece as if this is what all conservatives do and they're mm-hmm. terrible. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Jonathan Chait is complaining about the the cancel culture. Mm-hmm. So. I think that there are some people who are waking up and saying, hey, this is a real problem. And, and look, uh, people who listen to the show, listen to you and me, know that I'm no fan of Andrew Cuomo, and I think he's a somewhat loathsome individual. And what he's done in both in responding to COVID and also uh, with, uh, with, with women around him is terrible. But when he's attacked, what does he say? He blames it on cancel culture. <laughs> and that tells me that even a liberal... Like Andrew Cuomo recognizes that cancel culture is not pop- popular. But don't you and think he, he gets cancel decide, culture wrong too? I mean, he that's totally gets it okay, wrong. Okay, okay. <laughs> but that he uses it to defend. But that he uses it. Okay. Indicates. <laughs> okay. Indicates that cancel culture is not something that's popular among the broader population. So and there's a recognition that people don't like being canceled. People don't want their kids or their uh, or their wives or their spouses, their parents canceled. They don't want this whole notion of the the woke warriors on Twitter rising up and going after someone they know. And so cancel culture is not a popular thing. Now, I recognize that the woke warriors are doing a pretty good job of canceling people left and right, but the broader population is not on board with this, and I'm quite I'm quite comfortable saying that. And, and we, we've cited, um, you, you cited that poll that said 70% of conservatives feel that they can't speak, uh, but you know, there, there's a poll I cite in, in the article as well that talks about um, Forty-six percent of Americans think cancel culture has gone too far. Forty-nine percent thinks it has a negative impact on society. And just so people know, it's not that the majority thinks the other way. This is the plurality uh, opinion. So uh, more people think that uh, cancel culture has gone too far. More people think that it has a negative impact on society than think otherwise. So there are indications that this is a an item that politicians both in the Republican and Democratic Party, can seize and perhaps make some hay with it and push back against the AOCs and the people who who want to stifle us and not let us speak. Until a week ago, I would have argued with you more strenuously than I would now because I've been moved to agree with you on much of this. I don't know if you saw this piece by Glenn Reynolds 
uh, I think it was in his USA Today column the other day, uh, last week. But he cites uh, Nassim Taleb, you know him, the black, uh, mm-hmm. sure, the black, black swan book. author. And in one of another of Taleb's books, he evidently says three or four percent of a culture, if ardent enough, can change it. And then Glenn Reynolds writes a great point, and I think you'd agree with it. And I think this is what you're saying. Tell me if you're not, but I think it's a very poignant uh, observation. He says, "Try putting Dr. Seuss in a proposition. I bet he wins ninety percent." Is that what you're trying to say in somewhat? uh, The American people are not on board with cancel culture. You can cite that. You can tweet that. I I believe that. Um, But they're cowed, right? Most people don't want to stick their head up. Most people just want to live their lives. And this whole sense, it used to be you could go work at a bank from 9 to 5, and then at the end of the day, you could go and you could work for the Kiwanis Club or the Chamber of Commerce, or you could vote Republican, you could vote Democrat, you could do whatever you want, and that wouldn't come affect how you work and what happens in your workplace. And now, the cancelers want to go after you if you think the wrong things, if you belong to the wrong political party, even in your off hours, even when it has nothing to do with your work. And Americans don't want that. So take give us give us a two minute history from the eighties of how it started and to now because in an interesting way the alarm was sounded by two Democrats initially, Alan Bloom and William Bennett. Right, I mean, you know, Bennett's a pretty strong Republican now, and uh, Bloom would write for National Review. So, I mean, these are people who had not adopted the conservative label at the time, right? Not adopted the Republican right. label at the time, right? But these are people who, you know, t- t- today's view, we we would consider them as conservative, right? But you're right. There, there were these folks who recognized the excess of the left because they'd been on the left mm-hmm. and they didn't like what they had seen, mm-hmm. and they were pushing back against it. And then you had someone like Dinesh D'Souza, who was very young-looking, was Indian-American, and he would go on these college campuses, and people on the, the radical left thought he was one of them mm-hmm. because he looked young right. and, he had, and he was Indian-American. Right. And they said things to him that were outrageous, mm-hmm. and he wrote them down, and he put them in a book. And this is you know, about how they're trying to you know, stop people from using the word women. So it would have to be, instead of W-O-M-E-N, it would have to be W-Y-M-Y-N, because... Mm-hmm. Uh, the word men is inside women, according to these folks. So, uh, you know, he pushed back about it, and he subjected them to ridicule, and it got a lot of attention. He was a very aggressive marketer. Uh, the Bloom book came out of nowhere and was a major bestseller. You know, one of my favorite stories about Alan Bloom is he said, for all these years, people said to me, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Well, after the success of his book, he'd say, well, now I'm rich. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, right. Uh, so, so Bloom and D'Souza really uh, touched a nerve. And then you had liberals liberals, like our mutual friend Jonathan Rauch, mm-hmm. uh, wrote that, that book about free speech. Mm-hmm. And so other people took up the mantle and started talking about it. And there was a reporter, uh, Richard Bernstein, mm-hmm. uh, from the New York Times, mm-hmm. who wrote about the assaults on free speech. And the, the American people didn't like that you were constraining free speech. And then Hollywood took, even took it up. There was a movie I talk about in the piece called PCU, Politically Correct University, that mocks these politically correct cancelers of their day. All right, let me and let me pause it there. Let me, that, yeah, let me pause it there. Sign. Let me pause it there as we go to break. We'll pick up what happened from there and then why you think there's a lesson that we can learn today about how to uh how to rid ourselves of this uh meddlesome priest. We'll be right back with more from Dr. Tevi Troy. Welcome back. Delighted to have Tevi Troy with us, uh, presidential historian, author of Fight House, 
rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump and a brand spanking new massively uh, good and important piece in national affairs, how to defend free speech. You're right, Tevi. A lot of people have been uh, cursing this darkness and you lit uh, several candles here on how we've um, waged the wars against political correctness in the past to, um, to, to, to some success and what lessons we could draw from those successes to try and do so again. Do you want to pick it up from there or where, where we left off, however you want to take it? Uh, you were talking yeah, about the Jeremy Piven movie, uh, Hollywood. Right, got so the, the PCU, yeah. Jeremy Piven movie yeah. in the mid-'90s. And at this point, PC was basically over. Right. Right? Uh, David, I quote David Brooks in there who says, is there any topic more boring than political correctness? Uh, there was a sense that there was a P- PC supersaturation, that the American people had said, we don't want this, and and the, the nation pretty much moved on, and college campuses calmed down for a while. Now, so the, uh, Brooks writes that in about 1995. Now, in 2013, my piece picks up and says, cancel culture seemed to come back then, when you had people like um, uh, uh, Condoleezza Rice, who's you know, relatively innocuous. I mean, she worked in the Bush administration, but she's not a fire breather. Uh, she, she was shouted down on campus, and she couldn't speak. And you had uh, Charles Murray, who... Um, you know, uh, he, he was very, I guess, um, controversial in the early 90s, but um, but then he had a good two-decade run where he was showing up on college campuses without a problem, but then he gets uh, canceled, and he's not allowed to speak, um, I believe it was at Middlebury. And then um, and there's a sense that something was happening on campus. Heather McDonald, Candace Heather Owens, McDonald, Ben absolutely. Shapiro, uh, Ann Coulter, right? I think it's a little before Owens and, and Shapiro. Okay. This, this more, I'm talking about 2000, 2013 to 14. Pies and faces beginning. of Bill Crystal and Ann Coulter were, right. were, were, were becoming de rigueur, as I recall. Right. Right. So, so they, yes, those two were. Uh, so anyway, but there were, it was a relatively small number of people mm-hmm. initially. Mm-hmm. And now it's anybody who you know, leans to the right of the center line. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, it, it just seemed to me that it was getting worse. And it was also it was getting outside of the campuses. Mm-hmm. Right. The problem in the 80s and 90s was on the university campus. There, were, you know, you always had radicals on campus, but here were the, you know, they seemed to be running the asylum. And now in the especially in the last year or two, especially in the, uh, in the, in the Trump era, it, it started to um, infect major corporations, and corporations didn't want to have anyone who uh, had even somewhat conservative points of view. And the, and the media was um, increasingly intolerant of alternative points of view. I mean, I mean, the New York Times had a piece by Tom Cotton that they decided that they disagreed with, and they fired the op-ed editor for commissioning it, and they, and they, you know, they tried to cancel the, their own piece. They tried to withdraw the piece, I mean, and uh, Barry White, had to leave the New York Times, and you've ha- you're having people leaving journalistic enterprises because they feel like they can't say what they think. And so it really, in the last year or two, it, it kind of got out of control. And this is when I said to the editor of National Affairs, Yuval, a well-known conservative intellectual, uh, let's look at what happened in the past, and, and can we come up with a roadmap? And, uh, and I tried to identify four things that worked last time that perhaps we could use this time. And it really starts with conservatives and conservative unity, conservatives working together. And, you know, we all know that we hear all this stuff about conservative divisions, and you've got this type of conservative, that kind of conservative. Well, I'm long looking for what holds conservatives together. And this was an issue that held conservatives together then and potentially could hold conservatives together now. Because if you're a conservative, you pretty much believe in free speech. And if you don't, I question what kind of conservative you are. So the unity was important. 
Uh, but then you had the second thing was getting it out beyond the conservative bubble, make, getting it into the mainstream press. I already mentioned how effective D'Souza was in showing up in places like uh, Time and Newsweek and, and other mainstream publications. Uh, so the conversation went beyond just what you read in commentary in National Review and, and, and now National Affairs uh, and on the Wall Street Journal editorial page. It was, it was something that other Americans were reading as well. And then the third thing is you had some Democrats pick it up. I mentioned Barbara Jordan already. Mm-hmm. Bill Clinton, yep. um, his famous sister soldier moment, right. where he denounces sister soldier for basically being in favor of blacks murdering whites. And he, by doing so, it was seen as a you know a negative uh, slap against Jesse Jackson or, or something. But what it was seen more widely, it became known as a sister soldier moment, where you're willing to take on the most radical elements of your own party in order to show that you're reasonable. All right. So, so uh, you hear the music. When we come back, let's look for those allies and how that would apply today. Yes. And the fourth plank. But and yeah. the fourth plank. We'll start with the fourth plank. We'll look for the allies, and then I have some calls for you as well. Cool? Great. We'll be right back with more from Tevi Troy. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Tevi Troy is our guest. His latest book is Fight House, Rivalries in the White House from Truman to Trump, talking about his important brand-new article in National Affairs, How to Defend Free Speech. If you're on hold, don't go away. We'll get to you in a moment. Tevi, before we look for modern-day allies, you said you wanted to mention a fourth plank instructional lesson from the wars of the past. But the fourth one, and I've alluded to earlier, is, is ridicule. Yeah. The fact that comedians were making fun of political correctness. And, and we have it today with uh, Rich, Ricky Gervais, who is not a conservative, uh, but defends free speech. And he actually laments the fact that the, the, the notion that he talks about free speech has people call him a conservative. He says free speech is not a conservative issue. Right. But, uh, but he makes fun of cancel culture. He makes fun of the, um, of the excesses. And in the 90s, you had comedians making fun of it. You had this movie PCU. And you had, you know, I'm mean, look at Bill Maher's show. It's called Politically Incorrect because he's saying, we want to talk about stuff. We want to be open about things. You know, and Bill Maher is obviously to the left of, of you and me, Seth. But he doesn't like cancellation. And he's a comedian who kind of based his career on it. So that's the fourth plank. And and let me just say them again really quickly. Conservative unity, get into the mainstream, enlist some liberal allies, and get those comedians to mock it. Two and three seem to me the hardest. Uh, Two particularly, and somewhat three. Because I would argue, I think, Tevi, if we won then, if we won in the past on it, or at least we turned some of it around, it's a lot worse now. Is it because we let up? Or because the long march through the institutions was so strong? I think Uh, it's the long march. The long march. We gave up certain institutions or thinking it was important, perhaps. We wrote some of it off as silly, maybe. Um, I don't know. But it is worse now. Look, conservatives don't go teach at universities. Yeah. I have a PhD, as you know, and I never even considered teaching at a university because I would not be welcome there. Right. And there's a lot of other talented conservatives with PhDs who didn't go uh, to, to universities. And you think about uh, Frank Luntz and uh, Bill Kristol um, and Ralph Reed, all those people have PhDs, and they said, we're not going to teach at universities because we're not going to be welcome there. And so I think that... Uh, the, the kind of complete giving up on, on universities. Now, you know, I know there's a Robbie George at Princeton, and you know, there's an occasional conserv- one conservative pr- uh, professor on a campus. But for the most part, there's tons of campuses where there are no conservatives. There's no oasis, and there's no uh, there's no pushback against it. So the conservative students either 
switch to become leftist because it's easier to go with the flow, or they just keep their mouth shut for four years. And I, I've told you the story of, of my friend in graduate school who came up to me. I, I didn't know his politics at all, and he said, is it true you've written for National Review? I thought I was about to get in a fight with him. Uh, and instead, when I said, yes, I had, he whispered in my ear that he was a conservative, but I shouldn't let anybody know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let me do this. Before I... Uh, uh push on you a little more. Let me get to uh, some of our callers real quick, uh, because they're probably thinking things I'm not. Jeremy in Phoenix, you're on with Dr. Tebby Troy. Thanks. I appreciate it. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Yeah. Hi, Jeremy. Okay, good. Great. Hey, how are you? Um, I'm retired Air Force. I've got a comment and a question. I'll, I'll say them quickly, and then you can address them, and I'll, someone else can get on first. Uh, with um, Mr. Cuomo, I think um, you're a little bit wrong in that he is against cancel culture. He's against it now. He wasn't against it six months ago. <laughs> no, I totally agree with you. No, I, I don't think I'm wrong. I, I think we're in complete agreement. I just think it was it was telling that Cuomo, when he's in trouble, cites cancel culture because he knows that that phrase is not popular. Not that he's against canceling somebody who uh, who thinks improper thoughts. I mean, he tried to cancel anybody who was pro-life in the entire state of New York. So we I mean, told them they're not welcome there. So, uh, yeah, no, he is a canceler. But he cites cancel culture uh, to... He need to grab it as a defense, as a temporary defense. That's that's the point. Okay, go ahead, Jer. Certainly, thanks. Um, We can talk about that a long time, but the next point is that um, my my Air Force training compels me to provide a solution for any problem that I bring up. And so the problem is um, leftists and liberals, in our our view, um, lack education. Um, But the the follow-on problem is that there's no venue for us to, to... educate him or tell him anything because they won't listen to anything that anyone on the right has to say. And so I'd, I'd like to comment about the few people who are on the left who are, who are opposed cancel culture, who oppose some of the, the radical proceed, uh, policies that are being pushed right now. But what's our what's our venue to educate him um, toward our side? That's a great point, Jeremy. And thank you for the call. Thank you for your service to our country as well. Tevi, that's why I thought I said that's uh, he's getting to what I was saying, why I think number two is the hardest getting into The New York Times or getting out of Prager U and, you know, the Seth Leibson show to a wider audience. You know what I mean? I, I know what you mean. And I think of Heather McDonald here because Heather McDonald talked about her and she's been canceled and all that stuff. But she always says this thing about these students on campuses. They whine. They're so oppressed. We're so oppressed. We're the most oppressed ever. And she says they're not oppressed. They are the most privileged people in all of history because they have at the touch of their fingers what Faust sold his soul for, which is knowledge. There's a whole world out there, and you can access it, and you can come across PragerU, even if it's not necessarily the prevailing view on, on university campuses. You can go and see and, and easily read the Wall Street Journal editorial page. It's not beyond your ability to get this stuff. And, and you know, a lot of people are just going to go with the flow and not think beyond. But people who are willing to think and listen and learn, those people are, are gettable. And I think that, um, you know, again, Matt Taibbi, yeah. uh, uh, Jonathan Chait. I mean, yep. these guys are uh, Matt Iglesias. These people are tormented conservatives for years. I mean, hate conservatives, uh, relish uh, taking con- conservatives to task for anything. And these guys are saying, hey, well, what's going on here? Uh, we can't stand this lack of freedom, this stifling inability to let us say what we think. And if you can get those guys, I think that you know that, that shows there's a foothold. Yeah, I, 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 I think it does. And I, I, I think, too, you know the story at Smith. You have um, you have this uh, a couple stories at Smith College, but one of them that struck me was you had this administrator who always considered herself a liberal Democrat, 
And she wasn't going for this race consciousness stuff, and it led to her, you know, having to leave this college of many years where she was a beloved staffer. And I'm thinking, you know, we're going to – you can respond to this. We only have a, a minute on the other side of this break. But I'm always looking for, you know, what's going to create the next conservative. And in the 80s, a lot of liberals became conservatives or Democrats became Republicans over the Democrats going soft on communism, for um, example, let's say Jim Kirkpatrick, William Bennett, people like that. And I'm wondering if the new conservatives are going to be those who were censored by the free speech police or the speech police uh, and the PC crowd. Now, I wonder if uh, you can respond to that on the other side of this break and we'll close out the show on that idea. Yeah. I'd be happy to. Thank you, Tevi Troy. We'll be right back. Welcome back uh, to the Seth Leapson Show. Let me close out with Tevi uh, Troy. He's earned it uh, with his uh, contributions to the show and this massively important and big piece, How to Defend Free Speech, available at National Affairs. Tevi, I was talking about um, the next wave of converts to conservatism might be those liberals who were canceled by the culture. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where, where to go. And you, you mentioned the Smith case, and it's a, it's a good one. It was highlighted in the New York Times. Mm-hmm. So it's not impossible to get these views out there in the mainstream. And, look, uh, you know, I agree with, with Jeremy when he was making the point about Cuomo. Cuomo was, a, Cuomo was a big canceler. But when he gets in trouble, he says, oh, cancel culture, because people don't like it. And I think we have the ability to push back on it. I don't think Cuomo's a likely convert, uh, but but I do think that there are some intellectually honest people on the left, and again, I've mentioned some of them, Chait and Taibbi and Iglesias, uh, who are saying, hey, this is a problem. And Barry Weiss is making her whole career about this. And she, you know, she and I probably agree on Israel and free speech and probably nothing else politically. She, I mean, she is a liberal, and uh, and that's fine. Uh, I want to be able to talk to liberals about stuff without feeling like I'm getting it canceled if they don't like the way I nuance an, order, an, an argument. And with Barry, I feel like I can do that. And with a lot of liberals, I, I don't feel like that's possible these days. But I feel like if the template that I lay out in the National Affairs article, again, conservative unity and relentlessness on the issue, and get into the mainstream and get some Democrats and some liberals on board and ridicule, 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 mock the excesses, I think that's a formula for pushing back on this. I think it's a good one too, Tevi. And I've always thought that when someone refuses to debate you, that in and of itself is almost a winning of the argument. It's a win. Right. And and I think a lot of people who have been threatened with canceling, someone you may or may not agree with, uh, for example – is uh, the former New York Times reporter Alex Berenson. You know, I have noticed on Twitter there are a lot of attempts to cancel him. Amazon tried it until, uh, you know, Elon Musk came to his side as well. But when he threatens to debate someone or says, will you debate me, boy, do they go quiet. Yeah. Yeah. Because he bases it on facts and he's relentless and he pushes back and he, and he uses humor quite effectively. Mm-hmm. If you look at his Twitter feed. Yep. Yep. I agree with all of that, too. Well, listen, it's a hell of a good piece, and it's going to be uh, one that stands the test of time. Congratulations on its publication and uh, on all your writing successes, Tevi. And always, as always, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Seth, and uh, good night to all your listeners. <laughs> and to and, all uh, a good night. Push back against cancel culture. <laughs> Don't accept it. Flannery O'Connor said you have to push back as hard against the age as pushes against you. <laughs> we will leave Amen it with that. that wisdom. God bless you all. Class dismissed.